Welcome to this episode of the Performance and Health Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking all about altitude training. So if you're just curious about altitude training and what the benefits are, or you're thinking about doing it yourself because you've got an event, or you're going to an event and you're unable to do any preparation, or maybe have a little bit of time and wondering what to do, then this is the episode for you. So altitude training in any of its many forms is endorsed by top athletes worldwide Um, many of the very best cyclists from the uci world tour teams make their way to tenerife in spain as part of their seasonal preparations Um, but this isn't limited to cyclists Uh, particularly all elite endurance sports will have a portion of athletes using altitude training in their uh, cycles Uh, cross-country skiers and teams may spend one to two weeks on the glaciers above valsinales in italy uh, in around October to prepare for the coming season. Uh, Kenyan runners may use Nyahururu up at uh, 2,500 metres approximately, uh, and GB rowing uh, have been known to use Silvretta in Austria for their altitude camp. Boulder, Colorado and Mammoth Lakes also see a lot of action from uh, US athletes uh, looking to gain an edge in their upcoming season. Uh, So the purpose of this episode is to evaluate the effectiveness of altitude training and whether it is truly worth it for all, uh, for elites and sub-elite athletes. Now you may be wondering why altitude training is actually uh, quite controversial, like to some extent. I thought it was kind of an open and shut case as to all circumstances, if you have the finances, you should go to altitude to improve performance across the board Um, on one hand you have people arguing that acclimatization to high altitude results in central and peripheral adaptions that improve oxygen delivery and utilization Uh, additionally hypoxic exercise may increase the training stimulus thus magnifying the effects of endurance training so just saying it's an extra stressor on top of the initial uh, stress itself so maybe you don't have to like train at such high intensity to see the same results And then on the other hand, you have people arguing that hypoxia at altitude limits training intensity, uh, which in elite athletes particularly results in a relative deconditioning, especially in things like, say, for example, cycling, where the volumes used to achieve um, the training adaptions are between like 20 and like 30 hours a week are so large um, that any kind of reduction in that is just going to see a reduced fitness level. So... Whilst it is clear that adequate acclimatization or even better being born and raised at altitude is necessary to achieve optimal performance at altitude, the key bit there being at altitude, uh, scientific evidence does not support the effect after a return to sea level. Um, sorry, scientific evidence to support the effect after a return to sea level is yet to be proven unequivocal. So it's. It, it's not without a doubt if you know what i mean um so despite this elite athletes continue to spend considerable time and resource training at altitude usually now this is kind of unfair i was going to say usually due to a dogmatic nature of coaching uh, opinion and the findings of large numbers of uncontrolled studies i think there's an element of if a lot of people are doing it and the best teams are doing it and you have the ability to do it you almost as a fear of missing out in a way you an athlete may have a quite a finite period of time at where they're at their best. And if you reach that point, 
and maybe you have two years of that or four years or whatever, you may not want to risk losing one year. Because in reality, if your training goes down the pan and you could be done for the year, um, you don't want to squander that opportunity. So if everyone else is doing it, it kind of suggests I should also do this. Um, so in the case of riders in Grand Tours, it could be argued that they need this acclimatization to compete during high altitude summit finishes uh, to be a real uh, GC contender. So general classification, if you're not a cyclist, basically things like uh, the Giro, uh, Giro d'Italia, the uh, Tour de France and the Vuelta de España have finishes or at least sometimes they the rate the the day finishes on top of a very high summit um and sometimes it just goes over a high summit but regardless if you're not strong enough to get over that hill uh, in a fast time it doesn't matter if it finishes at the top or maybe it's a bit easier than to catch up down the descent but fundamentally you need to be in great uh, shape and the general classification is just kind of the average of total points earned uh, sorry least amount of time but anyway that's a discussion for another day the important thing is the argument still stands whether this is necessary or not as due to the volume and frequency of climbs over 2000 meters so in the 2022 tour de france there were four uh, uh there were four stages at which the highest point was over 2000 meters uh, split over two stages in 2021 there was three split over three stages in 2020 there was one in 2019 uh, was a particularly hard year with six over three of which uh so, sorry with six um points of which it went over 2000 meters three of which were within the same stage so an incredibly tough stage uh, for reference uh, 1500 to 2500 meters is considered intermediate altitude and 2500 to 3500 is considered high altitude now a lot of the work done isn't necessarily directed straight at endurance sports a lot of this stuff the reason why um like in cycling obviously high altitude would be like 2000 meters um but for someone doing a climbing like everest or k2 or whatever obviously that's not very high for them and intermediate altitude now being at 25 to 35 kind of makes sense um so this episode of course is going to go quite deep into the effects of altitude in general so it may be interesting for people who may just be going to compete at altitude say for example Leadville 100 because there's going to be quite a bit of information here that will support people who have both got the capability of training at altitude maybe once in the year or don't have it at all and are just trying to figure out how do they dem- how do they reduce the performance reduction that they are going to see by competing at altitude when they aren't already acclimatized? Okay, so how and why um, does altitude affect us? Um, air is a mixture of gases and the principal gases are um, oxygen and nitrogen uh, whose summated partial pressure equal the barometric pressure. You may have seen barometric pressure on a weather station and it's just simply the atmospheric pressure at wherever that um, weather station is. The concentrations are essentially constant over the Earth's um, various elevations. Um, And so the amount of O2 in the atmosphere is about 20.93%. Most people would just say 21%. 
remains constant at any given altitude. However, um, the surface of the Earth's oceans, which we'll call sea level, is also the bottom of an ocean of air. And air, unlike water, um, is compressible, which is the key um, concept here that will make this all kind of make sense as to why do people say there's less air at high altitude when the concentration is actually the same. So... So the partial pressure of uh, O2, which is referred to as PaO2, uh, in the atmosphere falls as barometric pressure falls. Therefore, the change in barometric pressure at high altitude is the basic cause of the decrease of the amount of oxygen leading to hyperbaric hypoxia. Um, atmospheric pressure and the PaO2 decrease at increasing altitudes in a logarithmic fashion. So the atmospheric pressure, PaO2, is 159 milligrams of hemoglo uh, milli sorry millimeter of um, mercury sorry millimeters of mercury at sea level and 53 millimeters of mercury uh, on the summit of Mount Everest. The easiest way I find to understand this is looking at an engine with a turbo. When you add a turbo to an engine you are not increasing the engine's displacement. Yet, there is more oxygen present within the cylinders, enabling you to add more fuel and therefore um, produce more power. Now, that is effectively your body at sea level. When you inhale, the partial pressure means that in the same volume of uh, air, there is a greater amount, abundance, um, of oxygen within that um, same volume because it's compressible. So the percentage of oxygen present is no different, but the actual amount of oxygen has increased, enabling the body to transfer more across into the blood and therefore use for fueling the muscles. Now, as you gain altitude you effectively are like removing that turbo from the engine now when you inhale the same volume is still 21 percent of that is oxygen but there is just a lower amount there is less oxygen present in that volume because it is now under less pressure um, less uh, atoms molecules have been crammed into that space They've just got more space. If you imagine each molecule as oxygen and nitrogen as tiny little balls, let's say, make it simple. They're tiny little balls um, of, let's say, jelly floating around. Now, when you're at higher altitude, there's just more space in between them. But there is still a ratio of 21% of those uh, balls are oxygen. Whereas when you go down to sea level, more balls flood in into that same space but they simply are in they are still in the same proportions so that's what's happening there you just when you inhale at high altitude the lower pressure means that there is still 20 percent oxygen in your lung but there's less of that oxygen present if it kind of makes sense maybe look up a diagram or something if it doesn't make sense but i think that's the easy way to look at it 
you've got a turbo attached to you when you're at sea level and the higher and higher you go the less pressure that turbo is supplying until at Everest it's, re it's removed completely and you better hope you have a high VO2 max otherwise you're going to struggle. Now the question arises of what are the adaptions that actually result in us being better equipped to coping with high altitude. So the first I'm going to talk about is the vent ventilatory response. The most important feature of acclimatization is an increase in depth and breadth, uh, sorry, depth and rate of breathing, um, which results in an increase in alveolar ventilation, ventilation that may reach up to five-fold of the values at sea level. Uh, this is achieved by hypoxic ventilatory response, which is also termed HBR. Uh, ventilatory acclimatization to um, hypoxia includes the time-dependent increase in HVR that occurs during hours or weeks of hypoxic exposure. Uh, hyperventilation increases partial pressure uh, of the alveolar and PaO2 and decreases the partial pressure of arterial CO2. Um, upon initial exposure to high altitudes, the vital capacity and residual lung volume are reduced. But after about four weeks of uh, residency, the values are maintained to the level uh, that uh, is very comparable to the measures at low altitude and sea level. In a recent study, um, well, I say recent, in a study uh, by uh, Somez et al., measured vital capacity at different altitudes, and the results showed that there was no statistically significant difference in vital capacity values after the measurements are taken at. 1,500, 3,200 and 4,200 meters during a one week long um, climbing to Mount Aratat, uh, which is 5,138 meters at its summit. Um, the oxygen and the pulmonary diffusion capacity remains unchanged at high altitudes when compared to the capacity attained at sea level. So those are the kind of the ventilatory responses. Initially, you are going to increase your breathing rate and the depth at which you are breathing to to uh, compensate for the fact that you there is just the oxygen um, its presence per volume or per breath is reduced so the simple way of doing it is increase the volume of um, air that you're uh, inhaling um, and then also exhaling initially a greater amount to help with clearing of CO2 because you got to think at sea level, say you take a normal breath and these are completely made up numbers, but say you take a normal breath and 25% of that uh, mixture of air in the lung now becomes CO2. Well, you've still got 75% of perfectly usable um, air in there. So when you exhale, it's not as important to exhale all of it. Maybe the residual amount is a mixture of like 10% CO2 and uh, the rest is still uh, usable oxygen or whatever or productive air. Now, when you inhale again, the air coming in is 21% uh, but the, there is a greater amount and when it mixes with that CO2, you've still got a large amount of oxygen. Whereas if... When you inhale, the volume which is in your lungs is there's less oxygen present. More of that is going to be utilized, meaning that when you exhale, it's important to exhale all the byproducts, as much 
uh, as large a volume of air as possible to make sure that you have as large a cavity prepared for fresh air, whereas it's less important when you're um, sat at uh, sea level. So on to what happens in the blood, aka the hematological adaptions. So the transport of oxygen in the blood is mainly carried out by hemoglobin, which is present in red blood cells. Upon initial exposure to high altitude, an initial transient increase in red blood cell concentration can be seen, which is caused by the reduced plasma volume and not actually by the increased rate of red blood cell production, as people will often think. Athletes tend to either live or sleep in artificial or natural hypoxic conditions with the aim to increase serum EPO concentrations. Now everyone's aware of EPO if you've been around cycling at all. Obviously in the 2000s, the whole Lance Armstrong era, that was all around EPO. Um, now EPO, which are thought to improve maximum oxygen uptake and thus exercise performance. Now we kind of know that is the case, higher EPO going to result in this improved performance <clears throat> so this is by erythropoiesis erythropoiesis is central to optimizing performance at high altitude um, during the ascent to moderate or high altitude serum epo levels typically peak within 24 to 48 hours and then decline to near baseline levels within approximately one week an increase in red blood cell mass however is measurable after three to four weeks and further increases have been reported up to nine months of continuous altitude resistance. Uh, for people who remain at a high altitude for less than a week, the change in red blood, red blood cell count mass sorry red blood cell mass uh, may not be considerable and would not make a significant contribution to acclimatization process. So essentially, the way I think I took away from all that is, if you are kind of doing a big event that like say the Leadville 100 you kind of need for it to make any changes towards the acclimatization process you kind of need to be there for longer than a week it would seem although EPO levels are going to peak within 28 to 48 hours um, it seems to suggest that though the red blood cell count and your actual capacity to carry more oxygen um, in response to this hypoxic environment is not gonna be there with just a couple of days before uh, a big event. So it's worth talking about cardiac uh, output. Um, so altitude also affects cardiac output, which is another determinant of uh, oxygen delivery to the working muscles. Upon initial exposure to high altitude, the resting heart rate increases rapidly from, let's say, about 70 beats per minute. And in some people, it's been shown to elevate to as much as 105 beats per minute in an attempt to compensate for the reduced oxygen content of the blood. Simply, it's like your demand's gone up in a way when your heart beats faster during exercise. It's because your demand's increased and you need to get more oxygen. Now, if just because your rate of inhalation and so on means there's less oxygen, you're the heart needs to do something about it and beating faster is um, is an option. Another important component that leads, well, a component that leads to the decreased in cardiac output is the reduced in stroke volume with acclimatization. So upon a prolonged exposure to altitude, stroke volume declines over time, stabilizing after about one or two weeks. While the factors responsible for this alteration in stroke volume are unknown, 
uh, hypoxic pulmonary artery vasoconstriction and loss of plasma volume, which result in a reduced uh, amount of preload, may play a role in the decline. Uh, despite the fall in cardiac output that I've just mentioned, the performance of the heart is well maintained even at extreme altitudes. There is no electrocardiographic evidence of uh, myocardial uh, um, ischemia and cardiac contractility as assessed by ultrasound is well maintained despite the extreme conditions. So during Operation Everest 2, uh, it was a study that was conducted on individuals the function was appropriate for the level of work performed and cardiac output was not a limiting factor for performance. Clearly, in an environment like that where you <clears throat> are performing sub-maximal work, the ceiling of the heart in its sort of maximal heart rate isn't really going to be an issue. In a cycling or running or athletic environment where really your ceiling your cardiac output is critical and a component of that is obviously heart rate if your baseline is now already 105 beats per minute just to walk about or sit down even and function clearly this is going to be a, it's like adding a massive offset so before you had say 120 beats effectively of of headroom to play with now that's been cut by like 30 or 40 beats imagine if whenever you went out for a ride or a run, if someone just said, say your say your maximum heart rate is 190, say someone said to you, at 170, you can't push any harder. And if it goes over 170, you need to bring it back down. A bit like almost doing zone two in a way. Imagine that was your max output. And that's effectively what's happening at, uh, at altitude. So that's the non-training related and uh, training related adaptions kind of covered. So this is the point going forward where this is going to be much more specific to athletic performance and less so the general concept, the general functions and how altitude works. So what about the duration and what altitude you need to actually be at? Um, so you're probably wondering, yeah, say you've got the exam, you've got the opportunity, what do you do? So common sense would uh, have you thinking that the higher, the better for altitude training. The issue is that higher altitude, the more factors that inhibit exercise performance are expressed. Above about 2000 meters, acute mountain sickness can begin to set in with some individuals suffering from this even at lower altitudes. The symptoms of acute mountain sickness sickness or AMS, uh, difficulty breathing, well quite obviously, uh, dizziness, fatigue which isn't great when you're already probably uh, fatigued from training, loss of appetite, vomiting and nausea, all these things are going to heavily um, inhibit your ability to train. I mean if you're being sick, if you feel fatigued, if you've got no appetite so you can't refuel after uh, training sessions, it's going to really uh, impact you negatively. At altitudes above 4,500 meters, uh, loss of muscle mass becomes more and more common. And the further you climb, the more training is inhibited and an athlete may begin to detrain as a reduced training stimulus overcomes the stimulus from the altitude. That's kind of what I was saying earlier. If, you're, if you are at 20 to 30 hours a week as an elite, um, like a semi-pro or pro athlete, say in cycling, then if you're now being 
knocked down to 15 hours a week, the stimulus from the altitude may not be enough to maintain your fitness. And although it's allowing you to become better adapted to altitude, it's not improving your actual overall performance. So there's a study where 39 competitive runners were randomly assigned to four weeks of living high, uh, 2,500 meters and training low, 1,250 meters, that was group A. Group B uh, was living high at 2,500 and training high at 2,500. And group C, who were living low at 150 meters above sea level and training low, again, 150 meters. Um, they showed that although VO2 max value significantly improved 5 kilometer race performance times by about 4% in the two altitude trained groups, the running velocity that corresponded to VO2 max and the ventilatory, ventilatory threshold at sea level were significantly improved only in groups that lived high and trained low. An unusual finding was that the 5 kilometer performance was uh, time was 31 seconds slower in the sea level control group, which would kind of point to the fact that the training stimulus was not absolutely controlled during the experimental period within this study. Um, regardless, they kind of came to the conclusion that the effects of altitude training were due to a high altitude acclimatization effect, um, just improved hematology, so the red blood cell, the hematocrit, all that kind of stuff was improved, uh, and a low altitude training effect was beneficial because of the increased training intensity compared to the group who had to live high and train high. Um, With this, the authors advocated that the practice of living high and training low as the optimal approach to altitude training. This is where the concept of altitude homes comes from, where people sleep at altitude and then come down uh, in altitude to train in theory to get the best of both worlds you're getting the altitude adaptions but you're also able to maintain your high training stimulus from the uh, lower altitude training now with all this in mind you may be thinking why um, why would there be any possible reasons not to do this because clearly if you can live high and train lower and maintain your training volume and this and that. Why aren't teams going to altitude for longer? Other than obviously to come down to uh, perform racing and so on and so forth. Now, when people are exposed to hyperbaric hypoxia, they experience different reactions to the effects of altitude. The basis of uh, patho- uh, pathophysiological changes in tissues at high altitude. The greater the hypoxic stress, the less time the body has to adapt uh, and the greater the adverse effects of high altitude. So that's kind of where like, if you're going to a high race, the greater the difference between your natural environment and the race, um, the bigger the effect is going to be on your body when you actually go there if you are not prior acclimatized. So number one... Um, is the effect on vo2 max for athletes the major concern is this impact on vo2 max Uh, vo2 max being the maximum capacity of an individual's body to transport and use oxygen during exercise which reflects the physical fitness of an individual effectively the point which oxygen consumption plateaus defines the individual's maximal aerobic capacity 
And if this is all new to you, then take a look at an episode I already have prior on VO2 max. Uh, VO2 max begins to decrease significantly above altitudes of about 1,600 meters. For every 1,000 meters above that, VO2 max drops approximately 8 to 11 percent. At the summit of Everest, this is a kind of fun fact, <laughs> the summit of Everest, uh, a sea level VO2 max of 62 mil per kg per min can drop to 50 mil per kg per min. Uh, anyone with a VO2 max lower than 50 mil per kg per min would struggle to survive at the summit of Everest without supplemental uh, oxygen. And I suppose this is why it's probably quite key to, I guess people do take supplementary oxygen, they take it in canisters. But I suppose the people who've done it without, uh, I think there's maybe two or three people who've done it without it, to my understanding, maybe more now. But obviously you're going to have to be in pretty good physical shape because, I mean, 62 mil per kg per min is pretty high and 15 is not that much to work with really, especially if you're carrying heavy gear uh, and you might be a heavy individual yourself. But obviously because that is uh, a relative value and corrected for mass, the 15 mil per kg per min is going to be the, you know, <clears throat> it's accounting for mass already there. There are other, well, sorry, so just staying with VO2 max, this is kind of the key bit of why um, your training intensity is kind of reduced is because you simply just have a lower VO2 max. So you're not stressing that system enough because your VO2 max, fundamentally, if you've trained the body to achieve, say, like 80 and then you go up to altitude and it's now 70, you're unable to stimulate that the same systems that have enabled you to have an 80 at sea level. So that's where this kind of dilemma comes into place, and probably why altitude camps aren't just indefinite. So high altitude also has uh, negative effects on uh, muscle mass and structure. So sustained exposure to severe hypoxia has de uh, detrimental effects on muscle structure. Chronic hypoxia of altitude leads to uh, a marked decrease in muscle fiber density. And similarly, there's a decrease in uh, mitochondrial volume by up to 30%. Not great, obviously, for athletes who are relying heavily on both of these. Uh, the changes in mitochondrial volume are accompanied by significant decreases in the activity of enzymes responsible for aerobic oxidative metabolism and muscle oxidative capacity and are found to be moderately reduced by exposures to altitude. During a study period of the uh, Operation Everest 2 project, weight was found to be reduced by 7.4 kilograms, which contributed to overall 8.9% decline in the body weight of the individuals. In the same study, in six subjects, total muscle area of their thigh and upper arms uh, was calculated via CT scans and the results showed that a decrease of 13-15% to 15 respectively. Um, weight was reduced by an average of 5 kilograms in the study participants during the study period of the Operation Everest 3, which evaluated the long-term effects of hyperbaric hypoxia on appetite using a hyperbaric chamber and simulating the ascent of Everest during a 31-day period. Uh, they concluded that exposure to hyperbaric hypoxia appeared to be associated with a change in the altitude towards eating and with, uh, sorry, a change in attitude towards eating and with a decreased appetite and food intake. So possibly some of these things can be avoided if, say, at a training camp you are 
pulled and prodded to ensure you're eating quite a lot more food. Um, but the mitochondrial volume uh, seems to be uh, irrelevant to that. And this is why simply doing a too long exposure to high altitude is not optimal. So you want to kind of limit it to a shorter period, maybe two to four maybe even four weeks looks to be too much given that the Operation Everest study was done over 31 days. Obviously at a higher altitude, um, but altitude nonetheless. So a high altitude also has negative effects on uh, sleep. Now sleep is critical for humans in general and even more important when under heavy training loads. Uh, sleep at altitude induces abnormal breathing patterns this breathing pattern is called high altitude periodic breathing it occurs even in healthy people at altitudes above 1800 meters uh, and it may lead to sleep disturbances with frequent awakeness and uh, feeling of lack of air uh, studies have found that hyp uh, hypoxia reduces total sleep time sleep efficiency and slow wave sleep uh, sorry and rapid. So studies have found that hypoxia reduces total sleep time, sleep efficiency, slow wave sleep, and rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. Um, and the depressive mood, anger, and fatigue often increase under hypoxic conditions, along with a reduced reduction in vigor, attention, and visual working memory, concentration, uh, executive functions, and uh, inhibitory uh, in inhibitory control and mental processing speeds. With prolonged time altitude, irregular breathing may subside, but the reduction in sleep quality remains due to hypoxia. So essentially, sleep is going to be heavily uh, hindered. Um, you're not going to get as long a sleep. The sleep quality is going to be reduced. You're going to be frequently waking in uh, all likelihood. And then as a result, I think a lot of the things that come after that like the irritability the vig the lack of vigor the just motivation being decreased uh your cognitive capabilities are all likely a linked to the fact that simply you haven't slept properly and then if you're loading heavy training loads on it that's going to make it worse so maybe this is a thing where your first training camp is maybe not going to be that great because these are all factors you're not necessarily prepared for, haven't experienced it before. So again, another reason why altitude training may not be essential, especially when earlier it's mentioned that uh, the performance may not correlate to sea level as well as it does to just performing well at high altitude, meaning that if you are going to compete at sea level for your events, maybe this isn't worth going through. Now, finally, do natives have an advantage? This is the biggest handicap, really, um, unfortunately. And so let's let's get into this. Something that needs to be addressed in all of this is the disproportionate running success of natives to high altitude destinations. Uh, studies have shown that high-altitude natives are characterized by a larger pulmonary diffusion capacity and adaptions in the structural and metabolic organization of skeletal muscle that results in higher coupling between ATP 
hydrolysis and oxidative phosphorylation. These of course are major factors that facilitate oxygen transport and utilization so have a clear advantage in this, 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 this area. The significance of these adaptions has been investigated in a series of investigations that have reported higher values for VO2 max, power output, arterial oxygen saturation and cerebral oxygen delivery during maximal exercise and decreased blood lactate and ammonia concentrations for a given sub-maximal work rate. So simply these individuals have a higher VO2 max and not only do they have a higher VO2 max or so higher ceiling, they're just simply able to function better at higher values and for longer at higher values. So all positives. They can think better than you while they're exercising. They can exercise harder than you can and they can ex exercise at a higher percentage of their max maximal effort for longer than you can. And this is natives to high altitude. And this isn't at high altitude. This is just in general. Um, so to, ex uh, to the extent of which these physiological adaptions are acquired as a result of inheritance or hypoxia exposure due to their environment is not well defined currently. Uh, recent studies have identified a major gene that enhances arterial oxygen saturation in sedentary Tibetan natives, obviously somewhere very high up. Uh, the physiological significance of this is that genetic adaptions to hyperbaric hypoxia resulted in improved oxygenation and uh, resistance to subacute uh, infantile mountain sickness. These adaptions were more pronounced in a cohort of Tibetan newborns whose ancestors has resided at altitude for 50,000 to 100,000 years in comparison to Han newborns whose ancestors has resided at altitude for only about 45 years. In general, the findings from various studies suggest that lifetime or perhaps even more importantly, generations of altitude exposure are responsible for the biological uh, distinctiveness of high altitude populations. Somewhat pointing to, uh, to short exposure being less beneficial. Um, simply, if you've been born at sea level, your family has always resided at sea level, the benefits that you may get this is why you see some of these people like you've got in the US now you've got Keegan Swenson who clearly operates well at high altitude but has come from high altitude and resided his whole life so there's also in the sports gene by um, I forget his first name Epstein there's a section on this showing that it seems to be during the preliminary years of life the initial years the cardiovascular system is simply more malleable and is able to adapt to this hypoxic environment. And simply when you get older, your ability to adapt to it and the benefits you see aren't anywhere near as prominent as they would be if you had grown up there and even better had family who had grown up there and their family had and their family's family had. And you get the point. So to finish this section, I'm going to give some stats. Since 1960, the percentage of Olympic medals won by native Highlanders in comparison to the rest of the world is as follows. At the 800 meter events, it's approximately 30%. At the 1500 meters, approximately 20%. 5000 meters, approximately 45%. 
10,000 meters, so the 10K is 50%, and the marathon, 34%. So clearly, there is some advantage, but whether it's coincidental or as a result of another part of their physiology is unsure. But when, you know, correcting, not correcting, but focusing on the fact of where they're born and whether this is at high altitude, clearly there is a correlation here that along these all well even at 800 meters this is an aerobic activity and they are clearly better equipped now this could be some other part of their physiology as i've said it could be to do with limb length and musculature and tendons and all these other things but it be i suppose coincidental for all those kind of bits of physiology to also coincide with populations that reside at altitude so take it you know to mean what you want so to end if you got this far thank you for getting this far but how would i approach altitude training i think if you depends on your sport i mean if you're elite then you're probably listening to this just out of curiosity and you kind of just have to do what your coaches and so on think Um, whether it's necessary for performing at uh, sea level well most running events are performed at sea level and these highlanders clearly have an advantage over uh, non-native highlanders so clearly there is a benefit as to whether being someone who just does it for two weeks of the year or eight weeks of the year or whatever it is it's kind of unclear and it definitely, a bit like I think uh, Matteo van der Poel had uh, in the previous season, 2022 season, it sounded like the altitude work went badly. That affected um, his uh, Tour de France and his um, Vuelta. So it clearly has the, the potential, although from these runners to do good things, it also has the potential to derail a season and if you're not a GC contender in cycling specifically, then there may not be a need to do it. There may not necessarily be a benefit. Now, for running, for example, whether you don't need to go do it at a high altitude unless you're doing something like the Leadville 100 or whatever, a marathon specifically, you just pick flat, like not flat, but low altitude events. And then this issue of your ability to acclimatize to high altitude environments isn't necessarily that important. Now, if you are someone doing, say, the Leadville 100 bike ride or running event, what do you do as a non-high uh, altitude native? Well, it looks like you've probably got a handful of options. With the whole EPO peaking and the red blood cell mass kind of continuing to increase for up to nine months but you know having a significant increase after about three or four weeks if you're a not even if you're a u.s resident it's probably costing quite a lot and it's a big investment it's a big event so maybe investing in something like an altitude tent where you can actually utilize it for four weeks leading up to the event now what i think i would do would be spacing it out maybe having four weeks leading up to the event then having a natural taper at sea level so you 
utilize the benefits of um, of sleeping outside of altitude in the recovery process and then maybe three days before you come kick back in the altitude work and stimulate those adaptions and then go up to altitude hopefully carrying a lot of these adaptions now if again that is also out of the budget then it just looks like you go up basically on the day um it looks like there's going to be no benefits to being up there 24 48 hours it's going to have to be at least a week or two so altitude 10 and then if you have the opportunity to train at altitude earlier in the year it simply seems to be a train high sleep low sorry train low sleep high as is kind of publicized in various outlets but critically do you need it to be elite if you were never born there it looks like it's very much still in uh, in question as to whether it is necessary and the increases in uh, uh, red blood cells initially is as a result of the um, serum decrease in plasma volume so if you made it this far thank you for listening to today's episode if you want more content like this there are plenty of other previous episodes to check out but before you do why not follow the podcast and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts from and even better share it with a friend it's the best way to spread the podcast around for any comments feedback or if you would like to suggest a topic for future episodes i can be contacted at the vo2 lounge at gmail.com and with that i will see you in the next one